Good morning. How are you guys? Uh, good? Uh, I'm a bit overwhelmed here. Uh, we, if you're from San Francisco or the Bay Area, um, we did not expect it to be this full. I actually, when we got this place, we're like, I'm going, this place is going to be absolutely empty and it's not going to be fun to show up to church. We're overwhelmed. We tried to kick everyone out from CARP in L.A. and Stockton. Not, not that we don't love them, but uh, we are really overwhelmed with people that are here. So thank you for being, being here. This is uh, such a beautiful thing that God is starting this church, this expression of his church, universal, in this wonderful city. We, we love this city, and he's doing it at this time. And, and we think it's a beautiful thing that we get to join in with the other churches to bring the gospel to bear on the hearts of San Franciscans. And we are honored. We're absolutely humbled. Totally humbled. I hope I can even get through my notes today. Now, if you're local to the city, you didn't expect to see this many people here on the first Sunday. I heard some people talking in the back like, oh my gosh, why are there so many people here already? There are our family from other reality churches in, in Santa Barbara and Ventura, Carpinteria, L.A., Stockton, um, that are here with us joining but we put them down below us in another room to pray. So there are some people that leaked in, but we try to, as much of them, down below praying for, for this service right now. So they're here, and we're, they've been praying. They, they're here because they've been praying for this, this moment, this day, and this church for two years. And my wife and I didn't just move here two years ago and, and, and try to do something. We, we just we waited, and we started a prayer meeting, a weekly prayer meeting, and we've been praying for weekly for two years. Some people have been praying daily for two years for this. Some people that lived in the city have been praying uh, for generations that God would continue the work he's, he's doing in the city. And God's doing a great work in this city through other churches. And we're so glad to be a part of it. So, because prayer is so important to the DNA of this church, we have a weekly prayer meeting. And it's on Tuesday nights in the inner Richmond. And the address is up on the screen. And, or you can go on our website, realitysf.com, and you can go to the Inner Richmond, and we'll be meeting there Tuesday nights to pray every week at 8 o'clock, 8 to 9 p.m. We'll be praying, if you can find a parking spot. Um, 8 to 9 p.m., Inner Richmond, we'll be interceding for the community, praying for the community, the community's needs, and then also for the church and this church plant. We've been doing that on Sunday nights, and they've been awesome. Now we're moving them to Tuesdays, and that starts this Tuesday at uh, 8 o'clock. So I want to pray right now. I want to thank God for what he's done and what he will do. I want to pray that because of this church and other churches in this city, that San Francisco would never be the same again, but would be changed, restored, and redeemed to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done and what you will and are continuing to do. I pray for this church that we would be a place where you are present, where you are here, where people would walk in these doors and know that God is here. That because you are here and we are following you, this, this in our gatherings would be this great, wonderful mixture of fear and excitement when we gather together. I pray that this church would be a community that makes much of Jesus Christ and little of ourself. That you would redeem God and you would save souls through this work. That you would restore and make people whole, God. We pray for the other cities in this church, the other wonderful, awesome uh, uh, churches in this city. We ask that you would bless them as, as they're gathering, gathering this morning. I pray for anyone here who might be young in their faith or might be here in doubting or skeptical or jaded by what they call religion. 
I pray you would reveal yourself to us, God. Speak to hearts and say, let there be light. Pray against the work of Satan and his servants, that the kingdom of God would advance and the gospel would take effect and Jesus would be glorified. And I pray that you would anoint me to handle your word rightly from this pulpit and help us to see Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Open your Bibles up to the book of Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're studying the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and what I want to do today, just briefly, because the, the book is, is, uh, is long to, to teach in, in a whole Sunday, but briefly I want to do an overview today looking at the way Mark constructed his, his story of Jesus, and how the Holy Spirit inspired it, and what it teaches us about who the, what the nature of Jesus is, who Jesus is. And we'll just start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So if you're there, let's read. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this sentence will hang over the whole book. You can actually read this sentence into the entire book of Mark as like an interpretive lens to see the whole book. You can look through this single verse. It's like Mark's pseudo title. Now, Mark doesn't title the book or take any credit for the book, by giving you his name, he writes anonymously. There's an unbroken tradition that the author was John Mark, who we read about in Acts. But what concerns Mark, and what led him to write this book, is seen in this opening sentence, that it concerns the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is important that you would remember this through the sermon, the Son of God. Before this book was written, the way that people passed on who Jesus was, was through uh, was orally. They would tell the life story of Jesus orally. People would tell other people about Jesus. And it was hard to refute the story of Jesus because of all the eyewitnesses. So if you walked around and were like, okay, I saw Jesus breathe fire. I remember when he was here and he was breathing fire. And someone else would go, no, 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 I walked with him. I followed him. He never breathed fire. And so eyewitnesses were able to refute false claims about who Jesus was. Well, as eyewitnesses began to die off, there were people who were trying to retell the Jesus story or recast and make up a Jesus of their own. Now, sometimes this works really good in movies, right? A la Star Trek, okay? Or Star Trek, or however you say it. I don't know. It's a good movie. Um, you and I, like, when you retell a movie like that, it, it, it can be really good. But it's, it doesn't really work with history, especially history as important to us as the history of Jesus. So... Mark wrote the book of Mark, the first account of Jesus that we have written down. After him, Matthew would write, Luke and John, and what Mark set out to do was put in writing who the real Jesus was. Not just a Jesus recast by, like we would say maybe today, recast by the secular relativist, or a Jesus that we, the church, are allowed to make up, but the real Jesus what he really did, who he really was. And that's what, that's what concerns Mark, and that's why he opens this book like this. And the way Mark starts this book is kind of interesting, because he starts out with the word beginning, arche in the Greek. It just starts out with beginning. Now, it, it might seem a little elementary here. Like, the way I'm starting my book is by saying, this is the beginning of my book. 
I mean, no one really does that. You might not get a good grade if you did that in, in, in writing class. You're like, this is the beginning of my story. I mean, it's nothing like, like you and I would read in literature. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That famous Charles Dickens classic. Or the opening line to Moby Dick, call me Ishmael. Like, those things, like, bring up uh, wonderful literary works. But to start a book, the greatest story ever told with, this is the beginning of my book, sounds weird. Now, you and I don't have first century ears, though. So when we hear things like that, like, this is the beginning, you and I don't have any context. We don't have first century ears. The word beginning, the way Mark uses this word beginning was used to awaken echoes of the first phrase in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. Now, the minds of his audience were brought back to the book of beginnings. Why? Because God who initiated creation is God who initiates redemption on behalf of men. And what Mark is doing is he's, he's anchoring his book into the, a larger story arc, a larger story, a bigger, broader story that it was God in the beginning who, who initiated creation, and now it's God who is initiating the gospel. Genesis starts like this, beginning, God. Mark starts like this, beginning, gospel. Mark starts by, out by saying that there was a new beginning, a recreation of sorts. The story of Jesus is connected to a much larger story. Your Old Testament and New Testament are very much connected. That's why they're in the same leather-bound book. They're very much connected. Now, just as in Genesis, God initiated creation, here at this time, God is initiating salvation. Now, this new beginning will be as dependent on the power of God as was the cosmos created by God in the beginning. This is God's doing. And I want to say this this morning, first Sunday, that this church is here by God's doing as well. That this church is here by God's doing, that this book is put together by God's doing, that God created the universe by his doing, and now we see a beginning. The gospel is, as, as Mark writes, a beginning. Now, what does Mark mean by the gospel? Mark doesn't mean here the beginning of the gospel as a genre or a book like you and I would think. When I say gospel, you immediately think Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But to them, that didn't mean that. Actually, Mark here is making up a genre. This, genre, this was not a genre before Mark wrote this. When he starts out the beginning of the gospel, it becomes now a genre, a style of writing that is about the story of Jesus. For Mark, the gospel is the story of salvation in Jesus. For Mark, the gospel is the story of salvation in Jesus. Both the, the gospel is both the message that Jesus preached and what he embodied. So it wasn't just a, a, a message. It was, it was Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. He's at the heart of the good news, both in message and in content. See, in Christ, Jesus, the messenger, is also the message. And this is why the Hebrews writer opens his book like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the gospel. Jesus, in all his majesty and authority, comes to us to speak and reveal the exact nature of who God is. 
Now John, an eyewitness to Jesus, starts his letter, we call 1 John, like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is real. It is flesh. It's not just a message, but it's a messenger. It's Jesus, the Son of God. And John has seen and touched him with his hands. Now, this is what, what makes the book of Mark so fascinating as you're reading it. Mark lets us know who Jesus is from the very opening sentence right away, straight away. We know exactly who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He's the gospel, the Christ, the Son of God. We know at the very beginning, but no one else knows. No one else in Mark's narrative knows who Jesus is. However, the demons know. So the only people who are calling Jesus who he really is is the demons, are the demons in there. Everyone else is like kind of clueless in the book of Mark. And herein lies the dramatic irony of the book. As you and I, the readers, know the identity of Jesus from the first line, none of the characters in the story know who Jesus is. So the suspense arises from the tension between the reader's knowledge, you and, you and I, our knowledge, and the ignorance of the actors. We know from the beginning who the real Jesus is. The Son of God, the gospel concerns him, but ironically, no one else really does. Not entirely. And this will be one of the main themes of Mark. And this is why it's so important, I believe, to why I wanted to start this church in this book. Because in this context of unbelief, in a climate of unawareness, Mark will present to us who Jesus really is. So as you're studying Mark, everything surrounding Mark's gospel, nobody really gets Jesus. No one really understands who Jesus really is. And in that climate of unawareness, unbelief, Mark goes, here who, this is who Jesus is right here. And he shows us Jesus. Some of you, or maybe people that you live with or you work with, don't really believe in the biblical Jesus. Or you would say in the Jesus that Christians believe in. There was a column in the SF Gate, I don't know if you read it, on Friday. SF Gate is like an um, online news uh, paper for uh, San Francisco. And, and it, this is what the column was entitled, When Scary Jesus Makes the News. Briefly, in this, in this column, this columnist described Jesus by saying that Christians are, quote, Christians are deeply ignorant of the real teachings of the true, mystical, renegade, anti-authority Jesus, who is about as far from modern Pentecostal, evangelical, fundamentalist, organized religion, worldview, as a vegan from a Kansas slaughterhouse. That's what he said. Now, and he was very witty throughout this article, but he is absolutely just reaming Christians. We're having a wrong view of Jesus. Now, who is, who is right? Who is true? Have Christians got it wrong? Does this columnist have it right? Does he have it wrong and we have it right? Is somebody recasting Jesus? Is somebody retelling his story through their contextual lens? I would invite everyone to read the book of Mark. Nick Cave, who's a, a front man for uh, this post-punk band in the 80s called Birthday Party, and later on he was Nick Cave in the Bad Seats. He was told by his... Um, 
uh, Anglican vicar to read the book of Mark when he was going through this really, really tough time in his life, and he's, he sought counsel, and he's like, what should I do? And this, this, uh, uh, this Anglican vicar said, read the book of Mark, and, and Nick goes, why? And in wisdom, the, the vicar said, because it's short. <laughs> now, at this point, Nick was willing to give up everything at this point, or try anything at this point in his life, so he, he grabbed the, the, the Bible, opened the book of Mark, and started reading. This is what he said about the book. In the book of Mark, Christ came to me as a light, dim and buttery, in the engulfing darkness. Out of all the New Testament writings, it was Mark's gospel that truly held me. Mark comprised Christ's life with such breathless instance, such compulsive narrative intensity, that one is reminded of a child recounting some amazing tale, piling fact upon fact as if the whole world depended on it, which, of course, to Mark, it did. And so what happens when you read the book of Mark, it just like raptures you into all of this tension, like no one believes, and then Jesus does this, and Jesus does that. And Mark writes, and he says this, Jesus is the gospel, the Christ. Now, when, when, when Mark says Jesus is the Christ, he's not saying that it's Jesus' last name. It's not like Jesus, his last name is Christ, or a synonym, like you and I use it. I use it interchangeably all the time, like Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, like I use it like they're synonyms. But not to them. This meant something. When, when, when Mark wrote Jesus Christ, he was giving a title to Christ. Christ was something, somebody. And he says the real Jesus is the sovereign. This is what Mark writes. The real Jesus is the sovereign son of God. That the gospel is Jesus and Jesus is the son of God. Now, I, I had you remember that, that phrase, son of God. Because that's what anchors this whole book. We're for, forced to wrestle with, oh my gosh, Jesus is the Son of God, but this, we have to wrestle with the strangeness of such a confession about a man who was misunderstood through the entire book and crucified at the end. And one way Mark does this, one way Mark explains this tension is he says that this whole story is the gospel. It's like one of the first ones to coin this phrase. This, this, this story is the gospel. Now, originally, in that, in, in that time, contextually, gospel in the ancient Roman world meant an announcement of victory from the battlefield. So gospel was victory from the battlefield to the Roman ears. The etymology went on to mean an epic announcement of good news. So originally it was a victory from the battlefield, and then it went on to mean just really, really, really good news. Like when kings were birthed, it was the gospel and that sort of thing. Now, in a Jewish context, borrowed heavily from Isaiah, the gospel meant the inbreaking of God's final saving act when peace, good news, and release from oppression will be showered on God's people. So what Mark does is he kind of hijacks both of these, these meanings and says that the gospel of Jesus is the victory of God and the inbreaking of his kingdom. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and starts to preach, this is his first, this is his first words preaching in, in Mark's gospel. Verse 15 in chapter 1 the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, for the first half of this book, the inbreaking of God's kingdom looks so, go home and read it, it's so fun. Just read the first half of Mark's gospel and it seems almost superhero-esque. Jesus is a superhero in the first eight chapters of Mark. It is insane when you get caught up in the story of all that Jesus does, how the victorious inbreaking of the kingdom of God looks a lot like what some moviegoers would expect. Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, calming the sea and the wind, walking on water, and twice multiplying bread to feed the masses. 
It was like releasing of God's sovereign power over everything created. My favorite depiction of this, if you have your Bible out, just flip over to Mark chapter 5. My favorite depiction of this is in Mark 5. I think this is like the climax of the first half of Mark right here. Mark chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read down to verse 9. I wish I had a really dramatic voice to read in, but I don't, so I'll just read it. Verse 1. I'll try, though. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Like, the, the tombs. Like, I, I picture Thriller in my head for some reason. And he lived among the tombs. This man lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. So he lives in these misty caves and these misty tombs, and he has shackles hanging off him because he's broken them all apart. And he's just this gnarly man. And later on, we'll see, he was kind of naked too. So it was pretty insane, this picture. And then it goes on, and it says, And no one had the strength to subdue him, verse 5, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now he's just a bloody mess, too. And when this gnarly monster saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for there are many. I mean, that's just climactic. I mean, that's just like the middle of, Jesus can do anything. He could tame this wild, untamable, demonic monster. And if you go on to read the story, he is tamed and healed by Jesus, and everyone is out of their minds. And they see this guy clothed and in his right mind going, how you guys doing? And wait, you had chains and cuts, what happened? Everyone's blown away to where they get afraid of Jesus. It's like there's nothing Jesus can't do in the first eight chapters of Mark. We get this impression that Jesus is in total control of every situation. You see, the king was among them. And they were walking and following Jesus. And in a way, this typifies the inbreaking kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has broke into time and space. God takes on human flesh and is setting things right, reversing the fall of humanity, making things new. And this is something that the church carries on even today. This is why the church should be about renewal and the poor and the sick and the marginalized that we purpose in our hearts that we will be about. This was the ministry of Jesus. But the real Jesus isn't simply a social miracle worker. There's something way bigger going on here. The story takes this dramatic turn in chapter 8. So if, you, if you're there, turn to chapter 8 with me. Chapter 8. Remember, Mark started his story out by telling us, the readers, who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. The central theme will become Jesus' question to his followers at a place called Caesarea Philippi. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is walking with them, and he asks them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they give some answers, but then Jesus asks the most important question of all, now who do you say that I am? You've been following me. You've been walking with me. Who do you say that I am? And remember, the audience had, had, had some claims, and Christ, the son of, 
Christ says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ. Peter speaks that, verse 29. You are the Christ. Now, at this point in the story, you and I, as we're reading it, we probably believe this very same thing. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Look at, he's like this purveyor of power. He goes from point to point to point, healing, casting out demons, walking on water, feeding thousands. I mean, this is the Christ. It was true. But notice, Peter's designation, designation of Jesus as Messiah, Christ, carries with it a range of connotations that are strongly nationalistic, nationalistic as we just said earlier, and oriented to the exercise of power. So when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, that word attached so much meaning about power and nationalism and pride and being a Hebrew, all these things. And look what happens next. Verse 30, and Jesus strictly charged them, that word there is rebuked in, in the original, to tell no one about him. Again, this is one of those things, and Mark, you're going to pick up. This is crazy. Every single time someone seems to get it right who Jesus is, he says, be quiet. Have you ever wondered why that happens in the book of Mark or throughout the Gospels? Commentators call this the messianic secret motif. That's a really fun title. This messianic secret motif. Every single time someone goes, you are the Christ, or we know who you are, he's like, okay, don't tell anyone. Jesus tells almost everyone not to reveal who he is. If they think they understand who he is, and they say it, Jesus commands them not to tell a soul. Why? Read on, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So what happens here is like, you are the Christ? Okay, I am the Christ. But now I'm going to go suffer and die at the hands of our enemies. And then Peter's like, wait, you can't do that. There's no way. You're not going to die. I just saw you heal the monster in the tombs. There's no way you can die. And then Jesus rebukes him. In the original language, there's a lot of rebuking going on. It's like, you're the Christ. Rebuke. And I'm going to die. Rebuke. You're not going to die. I am going to get behind me, Satan. Rebuke. And when you throw the Satan card, conversation ends. It's like, after the Satan card, Peter's like, all right. I mean, there's a lot. If you read the story, there's a lot of rebuking going on in this section. Why? Because they don't see clearly who Jesus is yet. Actually, there's a story right before this of a man who's blind and then made to see a little bit, but then Jesus touched him again and they could see all the way. It's actually, Mark puts that in there to bring light to this story. They see Jesus, but they don't really see Jesus. They see him, but they don't see him. And we can be guilty of making up our own versions of Jesus. The church can do this. People outside the church do this. Even his closest followers were initially guilty of that. We make up and follow a Jesus that we're comfortable with and that will fight our causes and will fight our agendas, whether it would be world peace or self-righteousness, religion or spirituality. We fashion our Jesus and we think this is what Jesus would do and then we follow that. And the reason why Jesus tells almost everyone who thinks they know who he is not to tell a soul is because they don't have the whole picture yet. Those who have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah have much to learn about what that actually means. 
Now, after this pivotal point in, in Caesarea Philippi, after chapter, the, the end of chapter 8, the mighty works of Jesus almost totally stop. The first half, it's all about Jesus' miracles, all what he's doing. But then second half, they almost stop. We only find one exorcism in chapter 9, one healing in chapter 10, and the withering of one fig tree in chapter 11. And that's pretty much it. The, con- the controlling symbol for interpreting the real Jesus becomes the cross at this point. He says it over and over again, the second half of Mark. I am going to the cross. I am going to the cross. I am going to the cross. And then he says, and if anyone wants to follow me, they have to take up their cross to do so. And it's all about follow me to the road of the cross. And Jesus can be rightly understood and rightly followed only as a son of man who will surrender power in order to suffer and die. And what brings what what this brings is that dramatic tension in mark's book no one truly sees jesus for who he is and everyone that thinks they do he tells them to be quiet now those that see him some reject him some follow him only to leave him later no one really sees jesus until the cross because who jesus really is is wrapped up in what he came to do he came to suffer and die for our freedom. He came to die on a cross that you and I should have died on. And as Jesus would go to his death under trumped up charges, a a brutal torture, mocking crowds, he hung on a cross. He hung on a cross, and he was forgiving the very people who were crucifying him, who were mocking him, who were spitting on him. He was offering up forgiveness from the cross dying totally innocently. They could not find anything against him. However, he's still on that cross. At the very bottom of that cross, at the foot of the cross, Mark, at the end of his story, tells of a Roman, a secular Roman centurion who is standing at the base of the cross of Christ. Who is standing there, who saw this whole thing happen. The most unlikely person to be standing there and to confess what he's just about to confess. And he would see Jesus go to his death under all of these trumped up charges, all this, all this brutal torture, and he would stand there, and this is what he said. He looked up to Jesus and he said this, truly, this man was the son of God. And he's not rebuked. He's not told to keep quiet. Because this Roman guard sees Jesus for who he is. And Mark just leaves it hanging there. Mark just says, let the whole world know now. Tell everybody. The beginning of his book, Mark's book's flanked by two phrases. The Son of God. The beginning, he just says, Jesus is the Son of God. And everyone thinks they know, but they don't really know. In the middle, it it, it twists and turns. And someone says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, you don't really know what that means yet. And at the end of the book, this the most unlikely of characters standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus, being crucified, and he says, truly, this was the Son of God. And Mark goes, bravo. That's who Jesus is. He is the crucified Savior. The real Jesus can only be rightly known at the cross. He is the Savior, the Messiah of humanity, taking our likeness, dying to pay our debt, If you only know Jesus as the teacher or the spiritualist or the humble peasant Jesus, you don't have the whole picture. 
Jesus can be known as the Son of God only when he is known as the crucified one. It's at the foot of the cross of Christ, the vantage point from the Roman centurion that we really see who Jesus is. Jesus isn't simply a great moral teacher or a social worker or a purveyor of power. He is the suffering Son of God whose rejection, suffering, and death reveal the triumph of God, the victory of God over sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus doesn't come to simply show us power or to speak peace and to care for the sick and the marginalized. He came to die for our sin because we need to be forgiven because we're in sin. We need to be restored because there's not a single soul in here that is not absolutely broken. And we need to, we need to be brought to God because we're all lost. Jesus died so that the kingdom might be fully established in the lives of men and women, that the kingdom of God could enter into the heart of men and women. And how do you receive this real Jesus? Jesus says that at the very beginning of this book, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Repentance is one of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. It means to change your mind and change your direction. To turn from your ways and your thoughts of who Jesus is to the real Jesus. The sovereign son of God who allowed himself to be misunderstood and crucified. That the world would believe and trust in Jesus. In him. And that's where Mark leaves us. It actually ends very abruptly. For a reason. And he doesn't answer any of those questions. He lets the reader decide. Who do you say Jesus is? And we see Jesus only from the vantage point of the cross. And I, my prayer, my hope, that this church would spend a lot of time seeing Jesus as our Savior. That we believe that everyone in this building is massively screwed up, way more than we'd ever care to admit. And we need Jesus Christ. There's broken people in this room. There's people that are just lost, and it's not the Jesus that just goes around and heal everything. Jesus that died for you to heal your soul. To bring you to God. And we do that by repentance. We go to Christ in repentance. We go to Christ saying, Lord, I changed my mind. I, the real Jesus is the one who died for me. And I believe and I trust in you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are the Lord and that there is no other, that you redeem, that you save, that you've brought us to you. And I pray, God, that as we study the book of Mark, you would make it painfully clear who the real Jesus is. We pray for the city, that the city would know who the real Jesus is. Not the one that we make up, not the one that we recast, but the real Jesus. And we pray, Jesus, that you would do a work here. That those that might be on the fringe or just kind of unbelieving or, or have this wrong idea of who you are, those that are seeking and, 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 and really on this like, path to try to know who you are, I pray that you would be found. And they would start in this book, this very book of Mark, just knowing that you can be known as the Savior who died. And we worship you as that Savior. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, 
This is where most churches end. But not us. What we believe is that the reflection, soul-searching, and worship is how God uses the word to not just bring information, but transformation. So a Bible study might be really good information. Oh, I didn't really know about that about Mark. Oh, I didn't really know that about Jesus. Oh, Mark's narrative is written that way. Okay, that's cool. That's just information. It's not transformation. Until there's repentance, until there's healing brought, until there's worship. And that's what we do at the end of, of all of our, our, our time together. We'll spend time worshiping Jesus. And so what we have is we have communion up here that you would come up and there's cups. We don't ask that you drink from them. Um, they're communal, just dip. Take communion, reflect on these. There's carpets here if you, if you want to kneel before God and there's a prayer team. You're like, I need help. I want someone to pray for me. I want to pray. I want to repent and receive Jesus. I want to put my faith in Christ. Maybe you want to grab somebody you came with or you want to come up here and, 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 and get prayer. And we want this time to be a time where now we corporately go, yes, we see who you are, Jesus, and we worship you. And that's what we do at this time. So let's worship Jesus.